Good morning. This is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Tuesday, the 24th of March and we're in lockdown. In a televised address last night, Boris Johnson declared as perhaps we all expected was inevitable some point soon, measures going beyond the advice he had given last week. The government has now instructed that all people should remain at home, with only four exceptions, and that is going shopping for essential food or medical supplies, and that infrequently, uh, taking exercise once a day and only with members of your own household, seeking medical attention or caring for a vulnerable relative, or travelling to and from necessary work where this cannot be done from home, which he stressed it should. All non-essential businesses are instructed to close, and the police will have powers to break up public gatherings of more than two people, as well as issuing fines for anyone contravening these rules. These rules will now be in place for three weeks, after which they will be reviewed. Though Johnson downplayed it, Nicola Sturgeon made clearer in her speech shortly afterwards that it remains possible that such stringent rules will go on for longer. A lockdown of this kind was necessary, and it is welcome, but it's also late. Public health experts and infectious disease specialists have been calling for this kind of intervention for the best part of 10 days. It's hard to know what tone to strike, really, between welcoming the long overdue action and wondering what dithering failure of governance at the centre of Britain means for the knock-on effects in terms of admissions to critical care, the need for ventilator support and deaths as the consequences start to become clear over the next couple of weeks. It seems a very long way to have travelled since this. Prime Minister, people aren't acting responsibly, so when are you going to get tougher and bring in the police? And Mr. Bring in G- the police? Yes. Right. You've talked about curfews. Yes, a very long way. But that was just 24 hours before this, and I don't say this to take some kind of tedious partisan glee in the sudden U-turn. It is a more grim confirmation of everything we already knew about Boris Johnson. It's more important because it gives one clear reason for public confusion, that serious advice is almost always, immediately, sometimes in the same sentence, undercut or shrugged off. And this is not a matter of pointing out trivial inconsistencies. It's that these inconsistencies from government themselves risk lives. So a mix of feelings, relief that someone somewhere in government has finally managed to take what's going on seriously. Irritation that it was delivered in a TV address, a Churchill impersonation and national spirit guff. No questions asked and no press present. Uh, a, A gnawing worry that what has prompted this turnaround are warnings, perhaps of some very bad figures coming down the line. Uh, A weary sense that most of the media will treat this as some kind of bold, decisive move, one that's somehow the fault of the public, which has once again disappointed its government, rather than the late amendment to half-assed and incoherent government policy and communications. And wondering what the country and the world will look like on the other side of all this. Naturally, though, there are immediate questions. What's really essential work? How serious and wide is the category of non-essential? How will it be enforced? And what's missing? Really, of course, enforcement on a social scale like this requires, frankly, the mass of people to be on board. Unless, of course, you produce a policeman for each individual. That's not a plausible policy, though it is one that seems sometimes appealing to the right wing of the Labour Party. No, It requires that there be mass buy-in, which in turn requires mass credibility and clarity from government. It's hard not to think that the last few days have squandered that in some degree, though I think 
it's probably equally important to push back and say, in fact, there's a sizable chunk of the country who have taken this crisis and social distancing, frankly, more seriously than the government has appeared to take it itself. How far that mass buying goes is a real question. It is startling, but the government appears not to have mounted any serious digital or mass media advertising or mass messaging. Now, that, I think, is going to have to change now. All those questions which trouble us at times like this about faith in politics, in government, in expertise, they all float around this too. A £30 fine and some hotspot policing won't do it alone. But there are also obvious questions about what's not there on regulation of public transport or the need for social distancing in supermarkets and the like. Those measures pale, those questions pale though, next to what is increasingly a glaring economic worry. And that question is really now a public health matter. How can you expect people to stay home and follow the rules if they can't financially support themselves? Now, this point is obvious, perhaps, but members of this government have historically believed that money incentivises. It's why they cut welfare and social security measures to the bone. If that logic is true, how can there be any justification for the reluctance to support renters or the self-employed? And most clearly, how can sick pay remain at the paltry level it's currently set at, if we really want to support sick people in industries still active, not to go in and spread the virus. That itself is not to mention offering debt and looming redundancy in front of the greater economic turbulence and convulsion which is now barreling down at us across the globe. Look, for me, it comes down to this. Income protection for all is a public health measure. No matter how many powers you give to the police, you cannot just do it by force. Now, those of you who caught yesterday's burner will remember Rosa's update from lockdown in Italy. She's kindly agreed to do an AMA for us and ask me anything about life on lockdown. So pop through those questions to me or on the hashtag TheBurner and we'll bring that to you very soon. Now, yesterday the coronavirus bill made its way through the Commons and will today wend its way through the Lords as it goes to become law. The bill is huge. It's 329 pages long and no... I haven't read the whole bloody thing. It's also a very quickly drafted piece of law. It contains extensive emergency provisions to allow the government to make orders across society, ranging as widely as relaxation of rules on investigatory powers to requisitioning business spaces for the storage of dead bodies. There will doubtless be new police powers added, perhaps in a friendly amendment in the Lords to enforce the lockdown. Matt Hancock, the health secretary, underlined yesterday, and I think this is important, that the government expects and hopes not to have to use many of these powers. Some of them you might expect, stronger powers to force business closures and penalise businesses which flout the law, uh, as well as powers to enforce social distancing and impose curfews. Other powers might turn your stomach and worry your head a bit as they do mine. Powers on border closure and beefed up powers for police and immigration officials to detain those suspected of having the virus or indeed the potential role of the military in frontline policing. One provision relaxes the obligation uh, of local authorities on social care in the crisis in order effectively to apportion resources elsewhere, which disability activists, quite rightly I think, fear could be phenomenally dangerous. Look, this is a very significant bit of law. It gives the government's very, very substantial powers to reorder, reorganise and effectively turn off parts of the lives of its citizens and gives those powers to be exercised in the future with little or no debate or scrutiny. Its only parallel really is in the Wartime Powers Act. 
There is basically no part of life that it doesn't touch on, at least in potential. As I said, it was also very hastily drafted. In fact, the first published version of the bill still had the automated email signature block included in one of its clauses. Uh, As it was introduced, it was intended that such powers should run for two years. Uh, It's therefore good that it appeared that the government accepted yesterday that they should somehow be reviewed by Parliament at six-month intervals, although it wasn't clear in the debate yesterday, as I followed it, uh, what form that review would take and how substantial the review power would be. But so what, you might say? Aren't you always the one banging on about how the state can do things private entities can't? Didn't you want vast emergency action? Yes, and yes, and... By the way, one day, very likely in our lifetimes, we will need a bill, different but similarly extensive, to deal with the consequences of climate change. But that's to one side for now. Everyone accepts that in such a crisis the government needs powers to deal with the emergency. What exercises me a bit is that such powers are sticky. I said this about policy yesterday, but it's also true of emergency period powers more generally. Uh, As in the case of the war powers in the 20th century, many of them hung around for a long time. For some measures, that's fine. It's now suddenly possible for women to be prescribed the morning after pill from home to be taken at home, long overdue, and that, thankfully, is unlikely ever to shift back. But how far and for how long should we expect, say, policing powers or border closure powers to stick around? Or, as often happens with policing powers especially, and especially those on freedom of assembly, will they stick around in just slightly scaled back from their heights in the emergency, but now a permanent encroachment? Look, there's been a lot of scaremongering about this bill, and I can understand it to some degree. I don't trust this government and I don't trust its leader. I don't trust most of the press to care either. And when you look at Hungary, you see the government now pushing a law to allow Viktor Orban, its ultra-right-wing xenophobe president, to rule by decree without any clear cut-off date. So, yes, I really do understand why you might worry. But to me, that's not where the fear should lie. It lies in the implications of hastily drafted laws, which by their nature tend to omit the people who usually get omitted and forget those usually forgotten. And it lies in the permanent alterations that they make at a level below Parliament or the ability to rule by fiat. It's the way they can permanently shift whether and how we can be searched or detained or which rights can be lodged uh, against the government effectively. And that's why defending scrutiny matters. It's hard to think that the bill's one-day passage through the Commons was enough time for scrutiny. It's also hard to suggest that some of these powers aren't genuinely needed immediately. So that defence also includes legal scrutiny and judicial review, a power which will still exist, and though it's one often abused by attention-seeking liberals, it's an incredibly valuable one. People like talking about this crisis as if it's a war and sometimes I suspect they like to do so because it allows them to accuse others of talking down the nation, of failing to be transported with admiration for our dear leader or painting scrutiny as treason. And it seems to me that this is a metaphor which needs to be dropped because behind it hide all sorts of dangers. Cicero said that in times of war the laws fall silent, silent enim leges inter arma. Uh, In 1941, in the middle of World War II and the Blitz, the Law Lords, the equivalent of today's Supreme Court, heard a case, Liversidge, which centred around a man's detention under wartime powers, really, really extensive wartime powers. Most of the panel there found no problem with it, though for slightly differing legal reasoning around the word reasonable in the law behind the powers. Lord Atkins, however, in a very famous dissent, wrote... 
In this country, amid the clash of arms, the laws are not silent. They may be changed, but they speak the same language in war as in peace. But it is sobering, perhaps, to remember that it was a dissent. So, it remains to be seen how this lockdown will play out. And just judging by some of the reaction last night, there's still plenty of people worried about their jobs or whose bosses are saying they still have to work or who are confused about whether their work qualifies as essential. And there are serious questions about how those new police powers will play out in practice, both the sheer scale of the operation and against whom they'll be deployed. But there are also questions as well about how far it can be sustained. And these are questions in the medium term as well. And what I mean by this is that it takes serious reduction in social contact, a 75% reduction, to bring down transmission in the scale that it's needed. It also takes time, weeks of serious lockdown, until we see whether there's a serious levelling off of cases. And we all know that governments are worried about what happens when restrictions are lifted, if cases then rise again. And for all the optimistic chat about vaccines, they seem a long way off. So what happens if we head towards summer and the need for restrictions is still significant? And what does that do to the economy over the next few months? Those are questions which are really exercising people in power at the moment. And we'll bring you more thinking on that this week. But how are we going to use our time in lockdown? How will we socialise? How will we organise politically? And how will we think about how to act? One organisation on the left has been thinking about just that. I asked Seth Wheeler from Labour Transformed to tell us about an initiative they've been building to respond. So, Hi James, so for the time being at least, um, COVID-19 has certainly curtailed the possibilities for direct contact and physical forms of demonstrations of our solidarity with each other that in the very recent past, less than a week ago, uh, we could meet or were met through, you know, face-to-face meetings where we got together and exchanged information and campaigning ideas, or, you know, whether these were demonstrations, pickets and protests and what have you. So for many in the radical left in the very recent past, social centres, which are sort of self-organised community spaces, have provided, you know, an important space and resource where um, different campaign groups can come together, meet each other, exchange information about stuff that's going on specific to those communities and maybe build sort of cross-campaigning solidarity and what have you. Um, Also, social centres gave those groups a sort of very important place to experiment with finding these new forms of community. So with this in mind, it seems important that at this moment in time we need to create online spaces that can achieve the same ends Uh, until we can safely meet up physically once again. Um, So building on an idea originally proposed by Naomi Waltham-Smith, Labour Transformed has built a virtual social centre and the idea behind this website is to bring all the different campaigns and initiatives emerging in response to the triple threat that is posed to the working class by COVID-19, the financial crisis and authoritarian forms of governance into one place so we can exchange ideas and info. And by doing so, we hope to introduce different groups to some new ideas and maybe act as a bit of a bridge between the different campaigns that are emerging in response to these threats. So alongside that information, we've also got links uh, on the website to the latest, you know, um, benefit and health guidelines, as as well as workplace and community initiatives. Um, And we have also got links to uh, video content and podcasts, usually educational or fun stuff that's aimed at overcoming boredom and sort of raising the collective intelligence of our movement. 
Um, and importantly, we've also built an online chat forum as a sort of place to overcome social isolation, to sort of bring different people together, socialise, meet friends and, and to make some plans. So um, if people want to head over and check it out, they can find it at the virtualsocialcentre.org.uk and we hope to see some comrades there soon. Uh, love and solidarity to everyone. So that sounds like something you should check out today. You might be stuck on your ass on the sofa, but now's the time to grow virtual solidarity across the nation. Our headlines today, lockdown Britain, national lockdown, end of freedom, says the Telegraph, which contains whinging about people being allowed to go to their second homes and so on. No surprises there, really. But other stories are maybe more interesting in telling. Mike Ashley, the lugubrious and repellent boss of Sports Direct, exploiter-in-chief and huge fan of Zero Hours Contracts, says he's going to try to keep his stores open under a creative interpretation of essential business. I can't tell you what I think of Mike Ashley in a public broadcast other than to say I think it's about time the government dropped a regulatory house on him. Details that promise, uh, details that the promise of support for renters and the ban on eviction, it actually turns out to be an extension to the standard Section 21 eviction notice from two months to three months. An insult? No, just the Conservative Party. A glance over at the United States reminds us that an ocean truly does separate us as conversation among its press, commentators and politicians turns to saving the economy, by which they don't mean saving the people who work in the economy, but stock prices and share values. Much, much more on the economic questions tomorrow, but just this thought to end. If there is a conflict... If your economic system is inimical to preserving human life, maybe it's not the idea of preserving human life that's the problem. Just a thought. Ahead of us today, the coronavirus bill goes to the Lords. Rishi Sunak delivers what's going to feel like his third budget in a week in the Commons, and that will be one to watch closely. Will he take any of the measures that he needs to? I'm pleased to say we now have a feed for the burner on iTunes, as well as SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify and so on. So do pop over there and subscribe if you'd like. Again, as we go on producing this briefing, I will need to hear from you. We've got stuff coming on mutual aid, the economy and the NHS, but please write to me with your questions, including those questions for Rosa about lockdown in Italy. That's james at navarromedia.com and your thoughts on what you'd like to hear about or tweet me on the hashtag TheBurner. We're going to be here for a while. That's it. Stay home. Wash your hands. Don't be a prick. Get in touch with your local mutual aid group. That's it. This is The Burner. I'm James Butler and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.